It's like I'm standing on a stage naked in front of a million people and they're all judging me. A little bit of fear can be a good thing because it makes you pay attention. It makes you alert. It makes you have to do the thing that you want to do. But too much fear is paralyzing. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. I want to start this whole conversation before we dive in around focus of a quote from you, Shane, which I read every Sunday, one of my favorite newsletters, Brain Food. And you wrote recently that focus is what creates results. The person who focuses will win more often than the person who doesn't. So my question is in a world which is becoming increasingly distracting and it pulls our mind in so many directions, how do you choose what to focus on? I think that like it's it's very important for us to pick a big project and then the way that we accomplish focus or the way that I accomplish focus is I don't schedule meetings before 12. So I block off every morning. I have no alarm clock. I get up when I get up, whether it's 4 a.m. some days or whether it's, you know, 6, 7, it doesn't matter. And then my mm-hmm. day sort of like, I don't have to find the time to work on the things that are important to me. It's there. And I think that that is the underrated sort of, um, I wouldn't say productivity, but it's the underrated aspect of focus because everybody knows what's most important to them. And it's not usually your biggest problem. It's your biggest opportunity. It's really interesting because you don't have a, a structured day as until you get up and you start work. You're very kind of fluid, but you'll also make sure that you start something specifically around 12 with your work meetings, but before then's your focus time. Yeah, so anything creative, hard, difficult, challenging, big opportunities, that's all morning. Mm -hmm. For me, and then there's a divide at lunch. I usually go to the gym, uh, go for a run, do something to like bring my energy level back up. And then the afternoon is just full of boring stuff. And I mean, boring as in like accountants, lawyers, (laughs) meetings, conference calls, like that stuff. And, And so, like for me, I think that divide is really good. And I'm a single parent, so when I have my kids, I mean, I'm up with them, I feed them breakfast, they get to school, and then my workday starts. And if I don't have them, I just wake up when I wake up. And my mind, I don't know about you, but like when I wake up, I'm ready to go. I don't want to lie in bed for like an hour tossing and turning. I'm like racing out the door because I have all these ideas to implement or to try. And I think that that... Uh, allowing that flexibility for me is great. Whether I sit in the hot tub and just sort of like read a book, which is part of what I consider to be, uh, you know, the work that I do, or Mm -hmm. whether I'm, you know, trying to write something and struggling with it, uh, it doesn't matter. But that focus is really important. But if I have 15 or 20 projects that I'm competing with, I would just move each one forward like this small, minuscule amount. I think the psychological aspect of this is the gap between where I am and where I want to be would just keep growing. Mm. Because Mm -hmm. on every project, I would feel like I should be farther ahead than I am. And when that gap gets really big, you just don't want to work on that project again. And then what you do is you you pick up another project. And -hmm. you're like, I'll start again. I'll, I'll do this other thing. But what's really getting in the way is you're not making progress on what you need to be making progress on. You're not closing that gap. And the only way to close it is just to 
put your head down and work on one thing, two things maybe at the most. When I put something on social media recently, I said, what are you struggling with? 98% of people said they, they all struggle with focus. How can we help reshape that? What's your kind of tools around helping increase focus? Two things come to mind, um, environment and routine ritual. Mm-hmm. I say environment because environment determines behavior. Mm-hmm. And environment, in this case, you have an environment, your desk, your setup, whatever your physical environment is. But you can curate that physical environment to make your desired behaviors or default behaviors by adding friction to the things that you want to avoid. Uh, most operating systems on your phone or your computer let you lock down apps during a certain time of the day. Maybe that's what it takes for you. For me, I just leave my phone in a different room. Uh, so it's not there. It's not yeah. present. And then if I want my phone, I can still go get my phone, but now it's work. It's kind of like having chips at home, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. trying to avoid eating chips and you have them at home, well, now you're in a battle of willpower. <laughs> and you're eventually going to lose. Everybody loses the battle with willpower. And you're going to break down, you're going to eat the chips. But if, the, if you have to go to the store every time you want chips, you're going to eat a lot fewer chips. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you can curate and create an environment that you want where you're adding friction to the behaviors you want to avoid. And mm-hmm. I think that that's very powerful. And the other one is ritual. I find rituals are a great counterbalance to sort of human nature. And we're prone mm-hmm. to distraction. There's almost like a natural entropy to our distraction. Like left to our own devices, we're going to take on more projects. We're going to do all of these things. And then we have to spend energy to like rein it in. And that's okay. But ritual is a great counterbalance to that. And the ritual can be, you know, I go make a cup of coffee and then I sit down and I do this every day. And if you work from home, the ritual can be I get out of my house, I go walk and I get a cup of coffee and I come back to my house. Or I get out of my house, I walk around the block. And what you're doing is over time, you're cueing to your brain that I need to switch into a different mode. Mm. I'm not at home anymore, I'm at work. And it's just Mm -hmm. that simple aspect of walking around the block every day. A lot of people have trouble getting started. So you can have a ritual around getting started. I mean, my kids struggle getting started with homework. So we devised this. We, we were like, how can we take advantage of human nature, create a ritual around doing homework? Because the, the, you know we started this when they were in grade seven and eight, and they get quite a bit of homework. They get about 90 minutes of homework, which is a little intimidating for them. And, and so they didn't want to come home and do this. And it was always this battle. And I was like, you know what? We're gonna, you're going to come home. You're going to shower. I'm going to make you a snack. You're going to sit down. You're going to do your homework. Mm-hmm. And for a month, this was like a big struggle for them. And then afterwards, it's just autopilot. Mm. No arguments, no nothing. I don't even, if I'm not there, they would still come home and do the exact same routine. And I find that really powerful because we just yeah. sort of create this inertia. We create a ritual around what we want to happen. It focuses us on what we need to do. And it makes our default behavior, our desired behavior. But at first, it takes a lot of discipline to sort of put it in place. Especially with kids. And it's taking me on to a really important question that I want to bring up. Because I know that you have two children. And I've got a niece and nephew. And I think they're probably around similar ages. And I worry about their focus because I think that they are continuously distracted. They've got way more things in their external distractions than I ever had when I was growing up. So Obviously, apart from implementing their homework routine, you know, how do you help them keep their focus? Because I think they've got a bigger battle. Do you want to get more focused, 
improve your sleep or support your energy levels, then great news because we've teamed up with my favorite functional mushroom brand, Bloomin. The first 1,000 people to use the code LWBW1000 can try it for themselves for free. Now, many people struggle with short attention spans these days. Fortunately, there is a natural way to help improve these problems, and that is Lion's Mane Mushroom. But how does it work? Well, Lion's Mane may improve neuroplasticity by helping repair damaged neurons and restoring healthy ones. And this is great news for anyone looking to improve their memory and focus. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, they don't get you high and they don't taste a mushroom. They are just full of the good stuff. All their blends have the highest amounts of fungal beta-glucan compounds, active ingredients on the market, and they're organic and double extracted. So whether you choose focus for cognitive function, boost for all-day energy, rescue for antioxidants, or breathe for calming anxiety, each blend's designed to work for your needs. So head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 at checkout. There's free mushroom powder for the first 1,000 listeners, meaning you'll get your first Bloomin product completely free. There is also a link in the show notes. They do. So I was conscious about the school that they go to uh, in terms of how the school teaches uh, it's a lot of, I would say, more traditional teaching. So it's like writing things out by hand, taking notes in class by hand, not using a computer. Uh, they're not allowed to use, uh, at this point, they're not allowed to use social media. And so they, like every other kid their age, want a cell phone. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought about this for a while. And I was like, yes, they will inevitably get a cell phone. But how do I give them what they... Uh, what they need at the moment and allow them to grow into the responsibility of a cell phone. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I decided on the Apple Watch with cellular connection. And the reason I decided on the Apple Watch with cell connection is like, A, I can find them in an emergency. They can call me. They can text me. uh, They can text their friends, which is super important to them at Mm -hmm. this age, and communicate and interact. But they can't do Instagram. They can't do Facebook. They can't do any form of social media on their their phone. And it's like, we'll grow into these responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do anything substantive on a watch phase, but it's pretty difficult. So it naturally adds a lot of friction to them doing things. And this is a battle that I, I will lose. My goal isn't to win it, it's to delay it. Mm-hmm. And the longer I can keep them focused, I feel like the better we're going to be. Now, with that said, before anybody runs away thinking I'm this, uh, you know, parent who who uh, is really hard on their kids, I'm very pro video game. I'm pro them having screen time. Uh, I, I believe in all of that stuff in terms of giving them that. Where it becomes a problem, and I see it now with like YouTube Shorts and that they get on YouTube and all of a sudden they get in the short reel, which is very much like Instagram and sort of reels or stories. And so we try to limit the time that they do that, and I try to get them to recognize when they're in this loop of like, "Hey, you've been doing this for like ten minutes. Do you know ten minutes has passed?" And they're like, "No, it feels like eight seconds, right, to them." Mm-hmm. And so it's recognition, but. 
The weird part being a parent is your kids are going to grow up and operate in this world and you want them to be independent and you want them to be successful. And so if you protect them too much from that world and that environment, you create this artificial environment that doesn't mimic reality. Then all of a sudden they grow up and they get into this other environment that they're not prepared to handle. So the way that I approach it, for better or worse, is increasing levels of responsibility based on age. I love that you mentioned the Apple Watch there, though, with them, because I feel like that's distracted my attention more. It distracted my focus more than anything else because of the notifications that come up on it. Right, but you can for them they put on school time, so during school yeah, hours. That's true. Nobody, it doesn't, it doesn't even go off. And they also go to a school where if you're caught using it, they confiscate it the first time. And the second time they don't give it back to you. And the parents have to agree to this policy before they send their kids to this school. So if you brought a cell phone and they catch you using it, you lose it for a week the first time. But the second time you lose it, you don't get it back. They actually just keep your phone. Oh, wow. I mean, that does help increase focus. (laughs) Uh, It definitely gets their attention. (laughs) Just as you're talking about this, we spoke so much about the external triggers that could happen with focus. But then also I wonder if there's a lot of internal triggers that could actually be the main distraction. So we're distracted by these external triggers, but it's actually distracting our own emotions inside. And so there's this push-pull happening with that we're blaming it a lot on this external focus, but actually a lot of it can be because we're feeling uncomfortable. And so actually we move our mind to that external environment. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think unconsciously fear drives us to distraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think struggle drives us to distraction. I think doing hard things drives us to distraction. It's much easier to do something easy than stick with something hard. I think the fear Mm -hmm. of failure and often even in the fear of success. I don't think we process all of this consciously, but the fear of success at a goal might mean something that you're, you're scared of. Uh, my parents quitting smoking was a great example of of this, right? So they they tried to quit smoking for a long time. They hung out with people who smoked. Nearly impossible for them to quit smoking, hanging out with people who smoked. They had to change their friend group in order to be successful at their goal. And there's an element to all of us is what does it mean if I'm successful at this? And, and part of that is if I'm successful at quitting smoking, it probably means, you know, unconsciously, you probably have to change your friend group. And so mm-hmm. that keeps you in place for these these behaviors, these distractions. And so I think really just exploring that stuff. And for me, the best way to explore that is like sitting in the hot tub or the sauna or paddle boarding or going for a run. And it's sort of like just being away from Anything where I'm required, like where I could have a device, like I don't bring a a phone in the hot tub, I can't bring it in the sauna, it would overheat. I don't bring it on the paddleboard in case I fall in. And so you're away from these devices and then you can start thinking, like what is the real barrier here? Like we have these surface answers, but if I go below the surface, what's what's really driving me to do this? I just wrote a book, it's coming out October 3rd, and I did I don't know, it took four years to write this book. And my house was never so clean as like when I was writing this book. And what I was really doing is I was procrastinating starting. And why am I procrastinating? Well, there's an element of I wasn't 100% clear on the material that I was writing. Mm-hmm. And for me, writing is the process by which I figure it out. So there's a mm-hmm. natural element of that's always in place. But the other element is I was sort of, I was really scared of writing a book. 
Because that meant to me, and the way that I, I sort of conceptualized this is, it's like I'm standing on a stage naked in front of a million people, and they're all judging me. And they're, they throw tomatoes at me and they critique me. And some of them are like, oh, you know, not bad. And, and for me, this is how I visualize this. So I'm, all, I'm scared of this. I'm scared of putting myself out there. And I think just the acknowledgement of doing that uh, is uh, helped me sort of get through that moment. And despite what I do for a living, I actually hate attention. <laughs> you picked the wrong career. <laughs> I think so. But but if you if you look at everything we do, like the, the website is not shaneparish.com, right? It's fs.blog. Mm-hmm. And the podcast is not the Shane Parish show. It's the Knowledge Project. Mm-hmm. And so everything I do is sort of uh, diminishing my role and just highlighting other people, which I actually prefer. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about this because I find your career so incredibly inspiring. And I really want to kind of delve a little bit into this because you've touched upon a few things. You know, you've just mentioned that you're about to release your fourth book. Um, it is your fourth book. I know that your third one came out recently. Or is it your third book's coming out? You've done three different books on mental models. So this is not a mental model book. This is like a big book on clear thinking with Penguin. Uh, with worldwide translation. And wow. uh, so this is like my first, I, I consider this sort of my first book. It's the first book that I didn't co-author. I wrote myself. And so it's a, it's a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. But, it, but when you start putting yourself out there in a vulnerable state, it is terrifying because you have way more backlash for rejection when you put yourself out there. But then you also have so much more gain of success. But I don't because feel the gain. Do you? Ever? No. <laughs> well, I have to say, I've started writing my first book and I am incredibly dyslexic. And it's taking me a very long time around that emotional resilience to draw enough confidence to write my book. So I love speaking. You can put me on a stage and I won't fear. I have no fear. But you put me pen to paper, I am terrified. Whereas for you, I look at you and I think, gosh, you just have this incredible mind, incredible knowledge of words. And for you, it must just flow so much easier. Not at all. I, you know, I, I, as you were saying that, I was like, have you ever just recorded yourself instead of trying to write? That's what I'm doing now. That's how I'm writing my book. Yeah, uh-huh. that would be, I think, a very effective way for you to do that. I think it's just scary to put yourself out there. It's scary, mm-hmm. you know, when I quit working for the intelligence agency and started doing my own thing, it's scary. Uh, but all the big leaps, all the big trajectory changes in my life, all the big moments um, have all been those moments where you feel fear. And I think bravery is like, it's not avoiding fear, it's feeling fear and doing it anyway. Yeah, and I think it takes a certain type of mindset to get to that place. It's a certain type of self-esteem and self-confidence because you were anonymous writing this blog, which is the FS blog, the Farnham Street blog. But even when you were at the intelligence agency being a spy, your boss came and handed you your own blog (laughs) and said, read this. Was there no part of you in that moment where you felt success and you thought, actually, I'm good at this? (laughs) No, not at all. I still don't feel that I'm good at it at all. In, in that moment, I remember the first time that happened. It happened a few times. I was just like, 
oh, this is kind of crazy. And then I was like, I wonder if they'll listen to me through the blog more than they'll listen to me in person. So how can I nudge the organization through the blog versus me talking in a meeting? And so I would plant words and sort of like phrases in, in there to see if they would percolate back into meetings. And inevitably, a few of them did, which was uh, quite entertaining for me. But I had to make it anonymous. I, I actually appreciated making it anonymous, but uh, I was not allowed to have a social media profile or any sort of thing. And I mean, intelligence agencies have come a long way since then, and mm-hmm. they do all have social media profiles now and all of that stuff. Uh, but at the time, I mean, we're talking in the post-September 11th world, uh, mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to have any sort of thing. And the job that I did sort of necessitated not having any uh, social media presence. Mm. And so how are you grappling with that now, bailing out your confidence to become more forward-spoken? I try to think of confidence as you, you can have two types of confidence, right? There's earned confidence, uh, which is you've done the work, you've put in the thinking. And it doesn't mean you're going to get the best result, but it means that you, you've, you've done hard things before and you've persevered. I think the most powerful story in the world is the one we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if we tell ourselves a story of fear, we're feeding a part of ourselves that is normal and natural, but the part that we're feeding becomes bigger than it otherwise should be. And if we counterbalance that by reminding ourselves we've done hard things, you know, we've been locked down, we've come through COVID, we've uh, graduated from school, whatever, you're, you've started snowboarding or skiing or whatever it is for you, just reminding yourself, like, how often do we just go for a walk and just think about what are all the hard things I've done before? Mm-hmm. And reminding yourself that you're still here, right? You've overcome mm-hmm. all of this adversity, all of these challenges. And I think that that gives us the proper perspective. And a lot of times we'll look back on those hard things as defining moments in our life. And I think that if we tell ourselves that story and feed ourselves that, we shrink the fear part of us. But you don't want to eliminate fear because fear helps keep you focused too, right? A little bit of fear can be a good thing um, because it makes you pay attention. It makes you alert. It makes you have to do the thing that you want to do and do it well. Mm. But too much fear is paralyzing. And I think that's where the fine balance comes in, right? You've dived really heavily into thought processes, not just around specific types of thinking and decision making, but all different mental models. You know, for me, when I read them, they are mind blowing. There's moments where I kind of go, well, when I'm in a moment, how can I actually practically use these? And that's something where I'd love to ask you of how have you developed 120, do I want to say, mental models? Yeah, so- the idea there, just to rewind a little bit here, is we specialize. You go through high school, uh, at least in North America, and then you start to specialize. You go to college, university, do a trade, whatever. And you, you basically stop learning broadly and start learning narrowly. And so I went to university. I did computer science, Uh And there's so much of the world that I wasn't exposed to by doing computer science. My undergrad's in computer science, my master's is in business. Uh, But you stop learning about the big broad world and you start specializing so that you can get a job. It's basically like a career education, if you will. So you can hit the ground floor running when you get employed. Uh, And the the employment costs, it's really interesting because they've shifted a lot of employment costs to university. I wanted 
to learn more broadly about the world because I thought that that would help me remove blind spots that I have. So when I'm, you know, if we go back to me working sort of at an intelligence agency, I'm young and I I have these jobs that require a lot of decision-making at a really young age. And it wasn't because I was super competent. It was just because I was in the building. And at that point in time, we just all did what we needed to do. But I remember thinking, like, how can I make better decisions? And what do I need to know in order to make better decisions? And, And the thing that I hit on that I was missing is, you know, if the source of all bad decisions is blind spots, we're blind to the consequences, we're blind to other perspectives, well, how can I widen the perspectives that I have? And so if you think of mental models as a lens, it's like you can see a problem through all these different lenses, whether there's you know, 50, 80, 100, it doesn't matter. But I wanted to make high quality lenses available to everybody. And not every lens works for every problem, but if I have this problem, and this is my thinking, then other people might have this problem too. And the problem is that we just got narrow, and we didn't do it intentionally. It just sort of mm. happens. And so how can I broaden my understanding of other domains and see where those uh, ideas, the big ideas that you would have learned in university had you done like every 101 course, how can I just go through and do those and make them available to other people? And that was the beginning of the Great Mental Models series, uh, which was self-published and co-authored and done through Farnham Street. And I think that that was super powerful for me to put out in the world because I think it makes the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I believe in equality of opportunity, not necessarily in equality of outcome. And I think that by putting those out there, whether you went to university, whether you didn't, whether you... Uh, dropped out, it doesn't matter if you want that information to be accessible. If you wanted to learn the ideas of physics, then you can go learn them. But we're not teaching you physics. We're teaching you how those ideas apply to real life. And then we also have thinking tools. And we have thinking tools like sort of second-order thinking or some of the ones we were talking about earlier about outcome over ego. And those are just little... condensed ideas that help you see the world differently. And by seeing the world differently, you might see something that you're otherwise blind to. Mm. It's one of those things that you wish you had in your 20s. And you kind of went through life understanding these concepts, as you said, more widely than as opposed to kind of life experiences. Actually, how different your life would be and how different the decisions would be that you would kind of come to. And one of the things I really love, I mean, there's a lot that I love around the mental models that you create, such as like how you plan your day. Um, And a lot of these are also widely available on your blog for free. Um, But it's decision journaling. Mm. And I found this really interesting because I've worked on the side of journaling for a very long time. I've had a lot of people come on to this podcast, talk about it. You know, the creators of the Five Minute Journal, where they started it 10 years ago. Um, And it's really changed kind of my day to day. But what I loved about this was that it's so specific on decisions, but it's a bit more of a long-term game. And I'd love you to describe the concept of this. I have a favor to ask. 74% of people that watch this podcast haven't hit subscribe. And 15% haven't hit the bell to turn on notifications. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible to keep sharing expert information and powerful stories to improve your life. So if you've ever enjoyed my podcast, please hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Doing this small favor will really help me. 
Thank you. So if we think about learning, just to, to take it from learning to the decision journal, the way that we learn, I call it the learning loop. And the learning loop is we have an experience, we reflect on that experience, and the reflection is condensing the experience into an abstraction or, or compression, whatever you want to call it. And then we have an action. And so you have a loop. If I'm in this situation, I'll do this again. But it's taking an experience, condensing it, you're eliminating you know, the gigabytes and you're just sort of making a text file almost. And then you know what to do next time if you're in the same situation. And the process of condensing that is super important. And that experience doesn't necessarily need to be a direct experience. This conversation is an experience between us. You can read a book and have an experience. You can go out and do something in the physical world and have an experience. And there are all different types of experiences. And there's better experiences and worse experiences for, for learning. When we make decisions, what we tend to do is forget what we knew at the time we made a decision. And we take the result of the decision. And if the result is what we wanted, we think we did the right thing. And if the result is not what we wanted, we sort of like protect our ego. And by protecting our ego, we sort of avoid the difficult conversation with ourselves that we might have been wrong. And so the idea of a decision journal was twofold. One, the process of writing out what you're deciding is also the process of understanding what you're deciding. And so we have these invisible thoughts in our head. And my idea was to make the invisible visible. And how do I surface my thinking? So I take out a page of paper and I write down sort of like all the things that are relevant. If you go to fs.blog slash DJ for decision journal, you, you can find out the template we use. But the idea is more practical than that, which is what am I thinking about this decision? What matters? What doesn't matter? What do I think is going to happen? What do I think are the key variables? You're basically just taking all of your thoughts and you're putting them on paper. And I often do this uh, at night. And then I'll wake up and I'll read it in the morning. And then I'll be like, does this still make sense? And often it doesn't, right? Or this, you know, (laughs) it's sort of like, oh, here, you need more information here. So it's a great directive for actually improving your decision making is to Mm -hmm. write out your decision before you make it. More importantly, later on, after the decision, you can chuck this away into a file every three months. You can go back to it and look through all of these old decisions. But now you have the benefit of knowing how they played out. Were you right? Were you wrong? But you can't convince yourself that you knew something you didn't at the time you made the decision. So often, you, you know, you'll end up in a situation where you're right, but you're right for the wrong reasons. So were mm-hmm. you actually right or were you lucky? Uh, or you know, you end up looking back and going, oh, I'm making this consistent mistake. I'm I'm sort of, I'm always overconfident. Well, now I can adjust a little bit where I'm like, I should be a little less confident, a little more hesitant, maybe provide myself a bigger margin of safety on these things, or maybe enter into them more slowly as I can gain and gather more information. But what you're really doing is just giving yourself feedback. And it's a really hard conversation. I don't recommend people type it. I recommend people write it with their hand. Uh, Because if you type it, we have this mental thing where we sort of convince ourselves that we didn't type that, even though we did. Nobody else could have typed it. But looking at a screen, you're like, no, I didn't send that email. You know, like who who hasn't done that before? But if you're looking at your handwriting, it's really hard to convince you (laughs) that you didn't write that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> That's very true. What about voice noting? <laughs> Listening to your uh, own voice back. Yeah, that would be awesome too. Um, be, have you done that when you journal? Are you writing or are you doing voice? I'm not great with journaling and writing. If I'm feeling overwhelmed or I feel like I need to make a decision, I normally go for a walk and voice note and talk through the rationale in my head. I try to allow myself then space to think and I listen to it back and I see if it, it feels right. But I feel like I'm very intuition driven. That's one of my kind of ways that I make a decision. If it's a big decision I need to make. I think we underestimate the importance of that intuition. Mm. Your body has an intelligence to it. And what you're trying to do is not dismiss your intuition. You're just trying to pause and reflect, is that correct Mm. or not? Mm. Uh, Because a lot of the times you feel things before you can articulate them. You know, you have an IQ, an EQ, and a BQ. And you have an emotional intelligence and an intelligence intelligence and a body intelligence. Mm -hmm. And only when those three things align should you go with your decision. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really powerful. And I don't think it's very practical for every type of decision, but I do think it's a very powerful thing for the type of decision where you're talking about, where so often we just ignore that body intelligence. Mm -hmm. We ignore that emotional intelligence and we just focus on this overly rational view of the world. And rather than that, I think we just have to imagine that you know we're on a spectrum and if you think of emotional versus rational and each ends are uh, you know sort of on a continuum and they're at different ends of this continuum you want to make different types of decisions at a different place on that continuum if you're making a financial decision, you probably want to be skewed towards rational but if you're making a relationship or love decision you probably want to be a little bit more skewed towards emotional because that feeling and that chemistry is all going to matter for how you weather the storm and, and sort of like how you grow together over the years and, and how you do these things. But if you focus on making a decision about love the same way that you focus on making a decision about finances, I don't know if that's going to work out very well. No, I don't. And I think it was one of the questions that I really had in mind when thinking about mental models, because there's a lot of people I can imagine, you know, I think it was 80% of readers are from Wall Street. So highly intellectual. And sometimes I fear that a lot of people get stuck in their minds and get disconnected from their bodies. And I worry that could that make that people become less attached to these three different sets of EQs that you spoke about, you know, the the body, the mind, the emotion. They're all so heavily integrated. What's your kind of take on putting them together and making sure that people feel and understand that emotion? Think of it as a mosaic where you need all the different pieces, but they don't all definitely they don't all need to be the same size. Yeah. And so depending on what you're creating or what you're deciding or where you are in life at this particular moment, they t- they can never go to zero. They always have to be there, but they can take different shapes and sizes. And and you can expand this idea to life too more broadly, which is our life is made up of a series of pieces. And those pieces might be family and community and um, friends and health and work. And we have all these things and they're all sort of competing within us for the same space. And if you think of them as a mosaic and you allow the pieces to expand and shrink as they need to, and it 
This is where I don't think about work-life balance. I think about integrating these pieces at this particular point in time and what needs to be larger right now. Because if we think about balance, we're constantly juggling back and forth between things. Mm. And they have to be equal. And if they're not equal, then we're not in balance. And if we're not in balance, we have to make it in balance. And I feel like that's just an, a struggle for my brain to comprehend. Where for me, it's a lot easier to think about these as like, you know, work needs to be a very big piece right now, but that piece will shrink back down after this project. Or, uh, and, and thinking, but nothing can ever go to zero. And what we tend to do, especially with overly uh, rational type A people, is you tend to take certain components of your life and move them to zero. And those things are health, relationships, you tend to overly focus on one direction in life. And you're incredibly successful at that direction. So you, you get all this feedback that what you're doing is good and positive. But what you've done is you shrink, 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 shrink all the way till these pieces are zero. And then all of a sudden you're 60 or you're 70. And you know you retire or things become more, your life expands a little bit. And all these parts of your life that you um, took for granted are no longer there. And I've seen this play out over and over and over with people where they try to fall back on a relationship. And now you know the relationship isn't good because they didn't put in the effort all along the way. And you look back at the end of your life and you start thinking about the things that matter. And the things that matter are all those pieces in the mosaic. And so you need to make sure that they don't go to zero and that they're all sort of integrated. And that's going to change. I mean, it's going to look very different when you're 20 than when you're 50 and when you're 70. But if we do this thought experiment where we look back at the end of our life, like what is it we want people to say about us? And what is it that leads to a meaningful, happy, fulfilled life for us? And that's going to be different. Don't let other people define what that is for you. You have to define that for yourself. Because mm. if you don't define it, you end up climbing the wrong ladder. And then you only realize it too late and you can't go back. You don't get a do-over. I mean, we get one shot at this. Mm. What's your reaction to that? Oh, it's one of my questions I had for you. I remember the first time I heard you speak about this and it was about being 90 years of age and sitting on a bench mm -hmm. and what do you want people to say about you? And I remember hearing that and it really, it stopped me in my tracks. And I also read a book that a friend wrote called Metamorphosis and it basically said the same thing and it also made you write a letter to yourself mm -hmm. on all the things you've achieved today and how do you feel? And it was also a lot about self-gratitude and your accomplishments because we very much, we bet, a lot of the times we overlook those and we always think, oh, we haven't done this and we haven't achieved this and we haven't achieved that. And actually it gave my mindset a totally different view that actually I have done quite a lot. And so those type of questions, I think, really do have quite a strong reaction on you because you kind of think, well, if I am 90, where am I putting most of my priorities and my time now? And then it made me think, well, I wonder what your response is. I wonder with all the success that you've had to date and where you are now, when you are 90, what do you want people to be saying about you or thinking about you and what you've achieved in your life? What are the areas that stand out for you? I'll answer this in two ways. I, I think I want people um, to say that I was there for them whenever they needed me, that I left the world a better place, and that I loved as deeply as I could the people that meant a lot to me. I think that that would be a great life. And mm. interestingly enough, 
you have these moments in life sometimes where you get a check and balance on how you're living. And about two years ago, I almost died. And I thought I was dying. So I, you know, I'll, I'll spare the long version of this story, but basically I was getting progressively worse and worse and worse. And, you know, at first, uh, half my face became paralyzed. So, you know, if I if I raise my eyebrows, you can see here that both you get wrinkles on both sides, but mm-hmm. you, your body is perfectly symmetrical. So this side of my face didn't work. I if I smiled, only smiled on one half of my face. If I blinked, only one side of my face blinked. There's no wrinkles on the other side of my my forehead. And you know, they thought I was having a heart attack, and that didn't make a lot of sense because I'm fairly young and healthy and have no sort of like uh, symptoms of that, but. Then you're you're sort of thinking like what is going on with me? Like how is it possible that I'm I'm in this moment and this is happening? And then you know slowly over a period of weeks, symptoms started getting worse and worse and worse. I couldn't stand. I couldn't open my mouth. I couldn't eat. I couldn't. I was sleeping like eighteen to twenty hours a day, and this was going on for a period of weeks and weeks. And you get a lot of time to sort of think about how you're living in those moments because I was like, oh, is my will up to date? And you start thinking about, okay, well, if this is the end. And it was an amazing moment of reflection. For Obviously, it turned out good, completely healed. There's no long-term consequences. I just had Lyme disease and it was getting really bad. And until it was treated, we, we didn't know what it was. And then you know, we, we tested, we found out what it was and we could treat it. The point isn't what the disease was. The point is that I thought I was I was just going, like I was on my way out. And it's like, have I taught the kids the things that I want to teach them? Have I told my parents I love them? Sorry, I'm gonna get teary here. Have I been a good friend? Like, have I have I done these things? How am I living? How am I spending my time? What have I done the past year? And if I could go back knowing what I know now, which is I think I'm going to die. What would I change? And for me, the answer was not a lot. And I I took a lot of peace from that in that moment, which is to the extent possible, I'm pretty much living the life that I want to live and doing the things that I want to do and making time for the people that are important to me. And I, I thought that that was a really good takeaway. My only regret, I think, or big thing that stood out was a relationship. Like I didn't, I don't have a relationship and I, I want that to be part of my my mosaic. Mm. And that's sort of the, the one thing to move forward with, I guess. Mm. The one thing to grow into. Yeah. And do you feel that's something that you've allowed space for since that moment? I think I'm I'm starting to yeah it hasn't mm. been a, a huge priority uh, but now it, it's becoming more of something that I'm I'm open to because mm. you think of COVID like for me COVID meant I've never been busier and I don't know what it was like there but Canada was locked down for like ever during this thing but like I ran three different homeschools. I had a bubble of people and I took care of everybody. I was hiring teachers. I was taking care of our employees. And I felt the weight of the world sort of on my shoulders. Mm. And you just have to keep going. But I didn't have the bandwidth to do anything else. All of my energy was dedicated towards those important things. 
and zero of my energy was dedicated to anything that got in the way of those things. Mm. And it was those priorities. Yeah. And so nothing else mattered. It was just like, that was it. Take care of my mm. kids, take care of my family, take care of our friends because we ran a homeschool, which I can say illegally now, like it was an mm-hmm. illegal homeschool mm. uh, because we were violating like local laws, I'm sure. Um, but in hindsight, I wouldn't change any of that. That was what mattered in that moment. That was the piece of the mosaic that needed to expand um, and taking care of all of our employees and just making sure that everybody was okay. Mm. And I think it's such a beautiful reflection on that moment for you, no? Like that, that, that you actually sat there and you thought, actually, most of these moments of my life, I'm being true. Yes, yeah. there's one more moment that I, I want to extend and I want to share that with someone else. And that's part of human connection. It's part of you feeling, you know, that your life growing with someone else. But apart from that, every other moment of your life was completely true. And I wonder how many people can say they're living their true life. Well, I don't recommend near-death experiences for everybody. <laughs> You don't need that experience to think this because you can just, you need to take yourself out of your environment. You need to sort of like go away for a night, go to a hotel, go um, to the middle of a, the woods in a cabin. And in those moments, you can just sort of have this guided reflection on where you're mm-hmm. at and what you want to do. And am I on pace? And am I living the life that I want to be living? Or am I living the life that other people want me to be living? Am I focusing my time and energy on the things that matter to me? Am I the type of person that I want to be? And it doesn't matter where you are right now. What matters is what you do next. Thank you so much for sharing that moment because I had a similar moment when I was in my early 20s. I was at the height of my modern career living in New York. You know, got those three areas of success that the Oxford Dictionary describes, fame, wealth, and social status. They're all there. Early, early 20s, bought a house in London. Felt that success. And then my dad had a severe brain hemorrhage. And it was in that moment where I realized for the last five years of my life, all of my priorities, I mean, I didn't even know what values were. I was 22. Like, I didn't even have this thought concept, you know. Um, But for a very long time, for those five years, intensely working for five years, you know, I'd completely forgotten everything that was important to me. And it's those moments where it wasn't my near-loss experience, but it was a loss of my dad that might pass away um, and was in a very bad space for the next you know, three to five years that made me redistribute. Actually, I need to come back and actually reflect on my values and my priorities. And it changed my kind of life course going forward. And it's those moments where you go, actually, if everything's over tomorrow, have I have I really been true to what's important to me? Or am I actually trying to work on external measures? That's such a big conversation. How, how was that for you? I'm, I'm super curious because a lot, from the outside, obviously, I've never been a model looking at me. But like from the outside, <laughs> modeling seems a lot like validation. Right? It's all validation. Um, and and so, But that means to me that you have a lot of your self-worth tied up in that validation. All of it. So how do your you change self-worth. that? Oh, it's been 10 years of a journey. Um, yeah, it's a lot. I think there's a there's a two-side story to this. There's one I feel very grateful to have come from um, a wonderful family who are very grounded. I grew up in a very normal, 
working class background um, just outside Portsmouth. Um, and so none of this was really available to me. You know, I kind of just thought I might, might go to university, but I was dyslexic. I wasn't the best at school. So, you know, my options didn't feel that I had the, mm. the whole world in front of me. And then all of a sudden at 15, my life completely changed. Um, I was flying to LA, I was flying to Paris, you know, at such a young age. And I was around some of, you know, some of the most influential people in that industry. Um, so all of a sudden, my brain was exposed to so much more than I knew growing up. But I think because my family were very strong and kind of were next me through that journey, allowed me to keep kind of one foot on the ground, one foot firmly high up in the air. Mm. So I think that definitely has something to be said. But there's a lot of rejection. But do you know what the odd thing for me was? And, I, and I'm and only looking back at this now as I'm kind of like reflecting a lot on my, on my life is although there's a lot of rejection and, you know, you'd go to 18, go sees a day and you'd get rejected from them all. I knew what every part of my body looked like, all the good bits, all the bad bits. I had such low self-esteem and such low self-worth because if I didn't earn any money, it was because of what I looked like, not because of how I spoke or how kind I was to people or anything like that. It was just about purely how I looked. But the one thing was that I actually became quite successful in that industry. And I became quite successful quite quickly. Um, and that was the first time I ever saw success because at school I wasn't successful. You know, my, my, the linear way of learning is very different to how I learn now. And I've definitely flourished because I've taught, I've taught myself my own learning methods and I'm not in a linear system. But as a model, doesn't go on school books you know it goes a lot on your confidence it goes a lot on maybe how can you interact with those castings how well can you get on with people and then how do you look and so for the first time strangely I actually had success so it's like a very kind of interesting dynamic on yes there's a heavy amount of rejection and you've really got to be strong and you've got to grow up super super quick but on the other hand it's the first time that I um, actually felt that I was successful so it's it's an interesting narrative. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm super curious, what's your, how do you define success now? Uh, so I define success as three things. Um, so when I was younger, I would have defined success as fame, wealth, and social status. It's the Oxford Dictionary. It's what we all kind of learn on the outset. Now I define success as giving back. So it's the reason why I started my mental health organization um, was to give back. And I believe that you get a huge amount. It's actually quite a selfish thing to do because you get so much, so much goodness from giving back. We know that from scientific evidence. I define success now as, as purpose, finding out your purpose and actually living your life aligned to that. And I think it's things that many people don't actually ever get to discover because they don't feel that they have the tools or the space to discover that. Um, and that was a huge one for me. And thirdly, I would design, I would define success as self-care, taking care of yourself first. And I think that's so important because, you know, even kind of hearing your story, how much of you were you putting forward and looking after yourself? We're always looking around others, but we're very rarely looking after ourselves. And we seem to see self-care as like taking a bath. And it's not, it's like daily moments that actually kind of keep us on the correct tracking and that kind of checking in with oneself. And I find that really important for any type of success. Um, so that's how I would define it now, but it's not how I would have defined it in my 20s. That's beautiful. 
Thank you. But how do you define success? I'm so happy that we've teamed up with Bloomin for this season of the podcast to claim your free month of natural mushroom-based supplements. Head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 to try it for free. There is a link in the show notes. I struggle with this question. I ask it to all of our podcast guests too because I don't I don't know if I have an answer for myself. And so I think part of me is like searching for an answer that really resonates with me and somebody else. Mm. I think, you know, it, it, my answer is sort of all the stuff that we just talked about that I was doing during COVID, taking care of my kids, taking care of my family, uh, being a good friend, being kind, trying to make the world a better place. Uh, all of those things, but I don't, I don't know if that's the answer that I, you know, it's it's like, it's the answer that comes to mind, and it's the answer that that I feel, but it doesn't quite feel right. If that makes mm. sense, it's mm. like there's something missing. I like the idea of self care because uh, that was one thing that I've just totally, uh, it, two of the last three years, I've definitely sacrificed everything personal for other people, which I have no regrets over whatsoever. Uh, but it also means like I need to recover, right? Mm. I need to, mm-hmm. I need a break. I need, uh, you know, just like athletes can't go out and perform every day. You need these rest periods. And, you know, if I had to, I could sprint like that for the rest of my life and I know it. Uh, but the flip side of that is I don't have to. So how do I build in these periods of recovery so that I'm prepared for whatever happens next? Yeah. And I think self-care is, is the biggest part to do that. And it's, I think it's also been really changed in the narrative, the context of how we speak about it. But it's actually like a daily small implementation. So what does self-care mean to you? Self-care for me, it's, it's taking time away from my desk. It's about kind of throwing out a narrative of what I have been told is the best way to work Mm -hmm. and it's actually feeling what's the best way to work for me Mm -hmm. it's having moments where I actually look ahead of my week and take out blocks of chunks where I can do exercise do yoga it's writing a daily journal it's such small things it's calling my parents every day that's something that I've changed on and that's Mm -hmm. self-care to me because it's a connection connection is a huge part of my self-care routine there's so many different ways and how I approach my self-care and it's five minutes it's not an hour and I think when we have these like longer goals, they just don't become achievable. Um, it's these smaller moments that are actually really important for, for oneself. I like that you said the word connection because I feel like that is what's getting lost today. Not only our connection with family and friends as it moves to more virtual, but our connection to the community, our mm. connection to our city, our country, the place that we live is becoming more, and the, the, the people that live in that community is becoming harder. You think about locking yourselves in a house. Well, you, you're not running into all walks of life when you do that. Everybody effectively became a gated community, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're not mm-hmm. seeing um, people who are less fortunate than you. You're not seeing people who are more fortunate than you. The world just mm-hmm. basically starts to look like you. Mm-hmm. And your belief system becomes reinforced because everything is now being fed to you algorithmically. And mm-hmm. your belief system 
is is what it is, but everything around you now starts to look like that. And so the diversity of our connections uh, was really um, narrowed, and I don't think it's come back. And I think that we need connection, and we need, you said purpose, and I think we all need to feel part of something larger than ourselves. And part of that purpose that we used to get through religion uh, was sort of like being a good family member and being a good mm-hmm. part of your community. And I, I, I often wonder, even though I'm not religious, if if we're missing that today. Yeah, do you know what? It's I take a lot of inspiration from the Blue Zones, um, which looks at centurions, and they have a power of nine by which they live by. And three of them are around connection. One is belonging, one is purpose, and the other is is community and connection. And we know mm. that from the longest study ever done, the people that have the longest but happiest lives are the ones that have connection. And it's not necessarily just a connection to your partner, it's a connection to your community. Mm-hmm. And I think we have come so fragmented. And I saw that kind of on steroids in the modeling industry. I was always on my own. I was in a hotel room on my own every day. And I become ve- I became very fragmented from everyone around me. And I was in this kind of weird ecosystem. Um, and I think that really shone a light on the importance of that connection. And yes, we, we have connection. We can speak to people online. But having that face-to-face connection, I think, is one of the biggest things we're missing. And it's, it's one of the biggest things of, of self-care. That's beautiful. Yeah. So maybe that's uh, maybe that's part of Shane Parrish clear thinking. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. That's 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 pretty deep. I think that's part of your book. Thank you so much to Shane for joining me on Live Well, Be Well. He is a true inspiration to me and I'm so grateful for him coming onto the podcast. Now, I just asked Shane a bonus question about his top three mental models that he would take with him to the intellectual wilderness. You can listen to this bonus episode when you sign up for a subscription using Apple Podcasts. Start your free trial of Live Well, Be Well now. I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe everyone's well-being journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritize, how to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed or even ignored. But I'm here to help and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need and you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just $14.99. Just click the link in the description or visit my website and I'll see you there. I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe 
everyone's well-being journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritize, how to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed or even ignored. But I'm here to help and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals, or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need, and you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just $14.99. Just click the link in the description or visit my website and I'll see you there. Thanks for listening.